Well, good morning again. Hope of you. I uh, hope each of you had a moment to reflect on that. We're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter three, in a minute. But uh, I need a little help before that. So, um, if you are typically going up to kids' community right about this time, so if you're in that like real young through fifth grade, what I need you to do is come up front right now and help me for a moment with a little talk, okay? So if you're here, come on down, come on down, come on, quick energy right up here, we need you. Yes, Nora, good job, look at you. It's good to see you, Clara. All right, you guys can just sit right on the floor if you want. I'm gonna move this for a second, then I'm gonna sit right here on the stool, right here, right here. Come closer to me. You don't have to face them. Let's just uh, look, pretend they're not even there. Okay, look at me. Look right here. Look this way. I know. Don't worry about them. Okay, this way. Turn here. Turn here. Okay, you can come a come in a little closer. Will you come in a little closer? Yeah. Slide this way. You can. Some of you can sit right here. Can you slide up? Yeah. I want to talk for just a minute about something important. Okay, but let me ask you a couple questions first. How many of you like staying up late? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I think most of us do. Now, why do you guys stay up late? Well, yeah. Oh, to watch movies. That's a great reason to stay up late. Good. Why else do you guys stay up late? Claire. To read books. That's awesome. Anyone else? Yeah. Oh, to eat candy? <laughs> That's the best thing to do. Eat candy, which helps you stay up late. Yeah, Grace, what about you? Play with toys. Good, good. Caleb, you got something? Oh, say your prayers. That's a great reason to stay up late, too. Man, oh, man. You guys stay up for way better reasons than I do. I love it. So, um, now, here's the thing. The challenge with staying up late sometimes, at least for me, is that then you have to get up in the morning, you know? And that, some of you maybe, how many of you, like, when it's time to get up in the morning, you just spring right out of bed, and you're, like, raring to go? If I asked your mom and dad, they'd say the same thing, yeah? No. Okay? <laughs> yeah, how many of you are a little bit more like me, where it's like, oh, my goodness, it's hard to get up in the morning, you know? Yeah. Now, when you get up in the morning, let me ask you a couple questions. Do you usually have an alarm wake you up? Okay, so your mom and dad are an alarm, right? Like, which one, though? Let's be honest. Who is it usually? Mom. Yeah, that's what I thought. Most of the time, maybe your mom wakes you up. Who wakes you up? My, my classmates are Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. So your clock wakes you up in the morning. So many of us wake up in different ways, right? Does everybody wake up the same? No. Like some of us are eager and excited, and some of us are a little bit sleepy. Some of us are like, how many of you say when your mom walks in, you go, two more minutes, give me two more minutes? <laughs> yeah? Yeah, I do that too. And then like, I'm like, two more, and then they come back in, and I'm like, two more, and then I just, you know, and now I just like keep hitting snooze, right, on the alarm clock, because some of us wake up with energy and excitement, and some of us are just tired and worn out. The one thing that I've done recently that's really helped me out is shaved my head, because then I don't have any bedhead when I wake up. How many of you, when you wake up, it's just like, <laughs> 
your hair is all over the place, yeah? A couple of you, good. But I don't have to worry about that. So I could have wake up a minute ago and you wouldn't have no idea, right? It's the best. So consider, talk to your parents and just say, hey, what do you think? It'll make life easier, right? No, you don't think so, Clara? No, okay. Now, uh, we kind of already decided, right, that not everybody wakes up the same way. We all wake up different. But here's an interesting thing. Did you know that the Bible talks about this idea that we wake up to God? What do you think that means, that we can wake up to God? What does that mean? Any ideas? Any guesses? What does it mean to wake up to God? If you don't have any, I'll give you two ideas. Okay, you ready for them? Number one, notice God. Sometimes we wake up to God by noticing him. So what does it mean to notice God? And then how, how, do, how would you notice God? What would that look like? What do you guys think? Praying? Praying might be a great way to notice God, but how else do you notice him? Yeah, Clive. Reading the Bible is a great way to notice God. Good. Besides praying and reading the Bible, which are like fabulous Christian Sunday school answers, um, what are some other ways you might notice God? Yeah. That's a fantastic way. If it's really pretty outside, if it's beautiful, if you like stare off and see the mountains or the sun and it's setting. Good. What are some other ways you might notice God? Jump on a pogo stick. Yeah. Or anything you really like to do that's fun. That's an awesome thing. Clive, do you like pogo sticks? Okay. If you haven't, maybe that's a great thing to ask for for Christmas is a pogo stick, right? Yeah, good. Kill him. Yeah, going on your bike is a great way to notice God, right? We can notice God in our friends, right? When we enjoy our friends, we can notice God in our family. When they do something that's really kind, that can remind you of who God is. So there's all kinds of ways to notice God. But the key is to always have our eyes open, to, be, to wake up to his presence, to wake up to knowing that he's around us all the time. But I want to give you a second way, okay? So not only do we notice him, but there's another way, and that is to wake up to God is to trust him. What does it mean to trust God? What do you think it means to trust God? Yeah, go ahead. Take a stab. What do you think? Don't know? Okay. Yeah. Okay, that's great. Maybe you're worried or confused about something, and so you have to trust God. Good. Nora, did you have one? What does it mean to trust God? Okay, yeah. So to, to listen to him and to pay attention to him and to, um, to not be mean to him, that's good. What else? Yeah. To believe in him. Yeah, excellent. All right. So there's lots of ways that we can notice God and lots of ways that we can trust God. But let me ask you a question. We already answered the question, does everybody wake up the same way? And the answer to that is what? No. no. Does everyone notice God the same way? No. Does everyone trust God the same way? No. So one of the things you can be thinking about is when you have friends, you can ask them, how do you notice God? Or... I'm going to give you a little homework assignment here. What I want you to do, I'm going to dismiss you here in a minute. I know, Benjamin, you don't like homework, but that's okay. 
This one won't take very long, and I probably won't check back in on it, okay? Um, so here's the deal. When you go upstairs or when you talk to your parents today, I want you to ask them two questions, okay? Can you do that for me? Two questions. First question is this. To ask your teacher upstairs, how do you notice God? What does that look like for you? And they might tell you that they notice him on a pogo stick. They might tell you that they notice him in the sunset, right? Or that they're friends or their family or church, okay? But then the second question is, what does it mean for you to trust God? What does it mean for you to trust God, okay? Because again, for each of us, that's a little bit different. And today, I'm going to be talking to your parents about the Gospel of John chapter 3, and there's a story in there about a man who needed to learn to trust God in a different way. And so we're going to talk about that. But upstairs, you're going to hear about some other things as well. But when you get there, ask your teacher, what? How do you notice God? What does it mean to trust God? Ask your parents, how do you notice God? What does it mean to trust God? And hopefully in that, we'll learn something today, okay? Thanks, guys, for helping me out. And uh, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. You guys, while everyone else is greeting, they're going to be hanging out, shaking hands, giving hugs. You guys can make your way out to your teacher right out there and then head on upstairs. Thanks, guys. All right, um, before we get into our text in John chapter 3, uh, I've got a quick question for you, and I'd love for your feedback or your input. Uh, the question is this, what can you tell me about Jesus' healings? If you were to look in the Gospels and see Jesus is healing a bunch of people, uh, what can we learn about Jesus? What can we learn about the healings um, through the Gospels? Go ahead and shout them out. What can we learn they were complete, okay? Good. They were full and complete. What else? Say that again louder. Yeah, miraculous, okay? Amazing. They were, they were uh, breathtaking. What else? Yeah, they were for the least of these. Uh, you didn't have to have a certain status or uh, kind of reputation. Any and everyone, uh, were, their needs were met. Good. Others. Say it again. Unconditional. Good. Good. What else? Okay. So there was both a physical and a spiritual dimension. Uh, that a lot of the healings uh, took, taking place like encompassed both of those things. Uh, but never without the physical really. Right? Good. What else do we notice? Okay. Yeah. Unexpected. Yeah, yep, there was a scandalous side and a secret side to it. Uh, Jesus, on a, several occasions, was like, hey, I did this thing, but like, don't let anybody know, okay? And then he had different reasons for doing those things, but yeah, absolutely. Any other thoughts? What else can we learn about his healings? Yeah, life-changing. It completely altered the future or the destiny of the person both spiritually and physically. I want to point out one other thing that um, hasn't been mentioned, but I think um, stands to be noticed, and that is that Jesus typically didn't heal someone the same way 
twice. You notice that. He goes from person to person, but it's not like he does the exact same healing. Even if they have the same need, he doesn't always do the same healing. So you have times where Jesus will approach someone and touch them, and it is through his touch that someone's healed. But then other times he spits on someone, or he rubs mud in someone's eyes, or he just simply speaks and it happens, or he tells someone to get up and walk, and they do. Or on occasion, um, people will be interacting with him and he just says, go away, and as you leave, you'll be healed. Just trust me. And the person has to leave his presence trusting that they will, in fact, be healed. So the question is, what does that really teach us? And it could teach us that Jesus is just into variety. He likes to change things up. Variety is the spice of life, and so if I do things a little bit different, people will notice, uh, people will pay attention to that. But I'm going to suggest that there's more to it than that. Uh, Many of you know that I uh, coach soccer in the community, And uh, I do that for a couple different reasons. One, because I love the game. But two, uh, because we really, a new community, uh, try to see vocation as holistic, meaning not just your 40-plus hours of work, but beyond that, how has God gifted and called you, and what responsibilities has he given you in the world and in our city? And uh, so I, I coach soccer for those reasons, but... One of the things that happens quite frequently in the game of soccer, especially with the kids I'm predominantly working with, and that's like 4 to 12 years old, is that they have a a rash of injuries, okay? And they're minor, don't worry. Uh, It's usually like the wind gets knocked out of them, or they stub their toe, or they get kicked in the shin, or they tripped and fell. And uh, as a coach, you're on the sideline, and you're kind of coaching the game, and then a kid will go down, And uh, even if you're not paying attention, you know that the kid went down because everyone kneels down like, oh, look at the kid who's hurt. And they all feel bad about it. And uh, and then the coach has to spring into action. And they have to run out on the field and assess the situation. And uh, I kind of try to make it my goal that by the time the kid is off the field, they're already healed, okay? A a bit like Jesus, right? You like deal with the situation in the moment and then uh, we get back to the game. And so when I go out to assess the situation, the first thing that I'm thinking as I'm walking there is what type of kid is it that got hurt? And the reason this is important for me is because depending on who the kid is depends on the approach that I take. So if the kid is really serious, he's really thoughtful, and you know, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to like be serious and thoughtful, and so I'll come to the kid and I'll say, okay, what, what hurts? Okay, your right leg hurts. Where does it hurt? Okay, can you show me? Can you move it? Etc. Etc. And as we talk through it logically, and that kid like kind of processes it and goes, okay, the pain is diminishing. Okay, that's good. It must mean that I'm not really, really hurt. Good. Can you stand up? Great. And then we walk to the sideline, and all's good, and they want to get back in the game not long after that. Now, if the kid is more like funny slash Uh, a jokester, or uh, kind of like laid back, and then I'll take a completely different approach. And so the kid will have tears in his eyes, and he's a little bit nervous, and uh, his leg hurts or whatever, 
And so I'll assess him in a completely different way. So I'll start and go, okay, show me where it hurts. And then I'll start checking out the wrong leg. And they're like, no, 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 it's this leg. And we'll, we'll kind of be playful with it, right? Or I'll, uh, I'll say, okay, where does it hurt? And they'll say, my, my leg. And I'll say, okay, well, does your collarbone hurt? No, why? And I'm like, well, because sometimes injuries can be contagious. And so, like, it could just kind of make its way right up quickly to a different part of your body. And then the kid will be, like, curious and wondering, and, like, his mind will get off of the injury. Or, you know, I'll ask a question like, man, uh, can I see your leg? Can I hold it here for a second? Uh, did you know that it bends right here? Is that okay? Do you want that to keep happening? And, uh, and just weird things like that. And suddenly the kid is going, like, his mind is distracted. And he realizes, like, okay, I'm not really, really, really hurt. And he jumps up, or she jumps up, and then they're on their way and ready to play again. And so the interesting thing about that is that I'm just simply trying to figure out what is it that the kid really needs and how will they best receive it. And I'm going to suggest that what Jesus is doing is not all that different from that. That Jesus knows the person so perfectly and so exactly that he comes onto the scene and he does the healing, but does it in a way that would be received best by the person? Or does it in the way that's most transformative to the inside of who they are and not just to the physical need? And so he's really intentional about the way that he approaches each and every one of us because his healings that happened then are not all that different than the healings that continue to happen today. And so Jesus is taking this approach where it's a little bit different for each of us. But I want to suggest something that's maybe a little bit um, along those same lines about our text today out of John 3. But to do it, I want to show you a couple other examples. I'm going to suggest that just like Jesus heals people completely different ways, that he actually also invites people to follow him in completely different ways. And that the invitation is radically different from person to person to person. So there's going to be a couple examples on the screen. The first one being in Matthew 19. And I'm not going to read through it, but you can kind of glance at it. I'll just tell you the story of what happens. There is a young man who comes to Jesus. And that young man, when he comes to Jesus, he says to him, Teacher, Rabbi, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? A.K.A., what must I do to be in relationship with God? What must I do to be saved? And Jesus simply says to him, well, follow all the commands. And the young guy is like, oh, man, that's awesome. Well, I do that. I'm pretty good at it, in fact. I follow all of these rules. And I've got it down to a science, and it's perfect. And it's exactly what I need. And so, therefore, I'm approved, Right? And then Jesus says, essentially, way to go, but one other little thing. Sell all you have and give it to the poor. And the text tells us that the man goes away sad. But Jesus' invitation is quite unique to that man. Because then if you look in Luke 19, the story is told of Zacchaeus. And uh, Jesus comes, and we all know the song, Zacchaeus, come down. And Zacchaeus comes down. And when he gets down, they have this little interchange. And Zacchaeus says this. I will make restitution with everyone I've wronged. I'll pay back my debts. I will, in fact, go over and above and pay back more than it, I need to. And Jesus says to him in that moment, today salvation has come to this house. Today I've showed up in your life. You've woken up to a new 
reality. If we go to other passages, you're going to see throughout the Gospels this idea of following God, right? And you'll see it in Matthew 16. It says this, if anyone would come after me, Jesus tells them, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And this is echoed throughout the New Testament. You get down to the one in Mark, and it says this, not only does it say, come after me, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, but also goes on to say, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It's another invitation. And in our passage today, in John chapter 3, there's an invitation that goes something like this. Jesus says to him, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, being a religious scholar, was a bit confused and says, I I don't think that's possible. I'm old. You don't know how this works. And Jesus says to him, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What you notice, and this is just a small sampling, is that the invitation to each person is always different. He continues to invite. But just like I said to the little kids this morning, everybody wakes up different. Everybody comes to the realization a little bit differently. And the invitation is sculpted to each person uniquely. And I think that's important. Now, if you look at those four illustrations again, the first one being sell all. It's really this idea of Jesus asking to the one individual, what are you withholding from me? I'm asking you to give up everything, but what are you still holding back? To the person who's making restitution, Jesus is coming in, he's simply saying, you have been invited to love me, to love God. But I ask you, are you loving others? Because if you cannot love whom you've seen, it's impossible for you to love whom you've not seen, is what 1 John echoes for us. To the person who he says, follow me, he's saying, abandon everything. Be willing to lose your life. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and do that to follow me. And to the person that he's saying, be born again, He's asking him, is it possible for you to return to the unknown? Is it possible for you to return to a place where you don't know everything, where you have an innocent faith, where you still have the ability to wonder? Is that possible for you to go back to that space? And while all these invitations are different, I want to suggest that there's a very common thread, a similarity, and that is the idea that they are all asking for surrender. While the invitation is different, underneath the underlying call is this call to surrender. Bates says it this way, with regard to eternal salvation, rather than speaking of belief, trust, or faith in Jesus, we should speak instead of fidelity to Jesus as cosmic Lord or allegiance to Jesus, the King. It's this idea of allegiance, that you've been invited into allegiance. When the good news that the Creator has decisively moved in our world to allow the kingdom to be revealed, and He's beginning to make 
and put all things to rights, which includes your relationship with him. When that wakes up in our consciousness, when that wakes up and we become alive to it, we understand it, it makes sense to us. All of the language around that is the language of allegiance, of surrender, of commitment, of abandoning everything to follow. Because the kingdom, and I think this is expressed throughout the Gospels quite often, the kingdom is experienced not by reform, but by a rebirth. A complete rebirth, a change. To be born again means to become like a child, to become a learner again, to have wonder, to abandon all of our adult, adult pretensions and to know that we don't know. To accept the childlike posture of being a learner. To be born again means to deny ourselves and follow. To be born again means to make restitution and withhold nothing. To be born again means to lay down your life and in the end find it. All of the calls or the invitations are different, but all of the calls are similar in that they require all of you. I want to encourage you this week in small group. Here's a list of questions that relate exactly to what we've been talking about this morning. And maybe take a picture of that and maybe discuss as a group. Asking the question, what are you still withholding? If the call is to surrender at all, what is still keeping you from surrender. If the call is to be made right with others, and that's what it looks like to be born again, who is it that you still need to be made right with? Who is it that you still need to enter into relationship with? Or what areas of your life are still requiring you to surrender? And maybe a final question would be, is there any area of religion or of faith that you need to kind of unlearn in order to enter into a space of freedom with Christ, in order to be not just reformed, but rebirthed, renewed. Now, New Community is a community, I believe, calls people into this very idea of following, of being born again, of being one with Christ. And I hope that as new community, we will never lose sight of the call we've received. And I say this because I think other communities of faith will often invite people to accept Jesus or to receive the gift of heaven or to add Christ to your life. But all of those things are different than what I think the call is. And I hope, a new community, that we will always bid you to come and die. We will always bid you to lose your life, for in losing it, that you truly find it. That we will be a community that always calls you to allegiance. That always calls you to the discipleship with the rabbi, Jesus. I want to wrap up our morning with the words of Bonhoeffer, calling us to this type of discipleship with Christ. He says this in closing. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, 
grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out his eye, which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives the man or a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price, and what has cost God must much cannot be cheap to us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon, reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Let's pray. God, may we recognize your invitation this morning. May we realize that in your call, that maybe perhaps some of us have not truly surrendered. That we have sought to add you to our life. Where we've sought the benefits that you have to offer, such as heaven or a freedom from guilt or some other uh, added bonus to the life we already possess. But you are not calling for a reform. You're calling for a rebirth. You're not calling for us to add you onto our life. You're calling for our life to be yours. You're calling for surrender. And God, while the invitation to each of us is different and there is not a formula, it is not a set of A, Bs, and Cs to enter into relationship with you, that each of us is approached differently by the Spirit, that in that there is a commonality, and that commonality is that you are the King, and we follow you, that you are the King, and we give you our complete allegiance. And so this morning, God, may we be reminded of that, that it is our life given to you, that we've been bought with a price that we are your children, that we've been adopted into the family, that our life is no longer our own, and that every decision we make is subject to our King. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.